Uh, thank you, Jennifer, and thanks for inviting me, and thank you all uh, for coming today. Um, I want to talk to you about a program of work that we've been doing for the last 15 years or so. Um, you know, of all stages of human development, the most dangerous one is, is adolescence. And the major contributions to morbidity and mortality during this period um, are behavioral in nature. Otherwise, adolescence is a very healthy period uh, in the lifespan with respect to illness and disease. Uh, here are some examples of what I mean. Um, compared to uh, children and adults, adolescents commit more crimes. Violent crime and nonviolent crime peak in the late adolescent years and then decline uh, thereafter. Um, as I'm sure that most of you know, compared to adults, uh, adolescents have more car crashes. These are US data. Um, but the uh, data from the UK um, look very similar. Um, this is an interesting graph because uh, this uh, shows you that the difference in crash rates between um, adolescents and adults um, uh, is not simply due to inexperience. So if you compare, uh, for example, individuals who get their license when they're 21 with those who get their license um, at 18, you still see that during the first year of driving, uh, the younger drivers have more crashes uh, than, the, uh, than their slightly older peers. Um, you'd be surprised, I think, to discover that compared to adults and children, adolescents drown more often, which is very surprising considering how strong they are. But here are data on uh, unintentional drownings, again showing a peak um, in the late um, adolescent years. Um, Adolescents also attempt suicide more often than adults do. These are data uh, from the Centers for Disease Control on what are called non-fatal self-inflicted injuries. Again, peaking at around the same point uh, in development as the other risk behaviors that I just uh, showed you. Um, and uh, they're also less likely to wear bicycle helmets. Adolescents are less likely to practice safe sex. And as uh, most of you know, adolescence is the most likely time of life for the initiation of drinking, smoking, and the use of illicit drugs. So psychologists uh, have been interested in understanding adolescent risk-taking for quite some time. Um, and there are many myths uh, that probably some of you heard in your psychology classes. I know that I heard them in mine about adolescent risk-taking. Um, the first is that adolescents are illogical. Um, but if you uh, give people tests of logical reasoning, what you find is that it improves until about age 15 or so, and then reaches a plateau and doesn't really change after that at all. So that can't account for differences between adolescents and adults in their risk behavior. It's also the case that adolescents um, actually, like adults, underestimate risk. Uh, if you ask people to estimate the chances of something bad happening to them, given certain uh, situation, situational uh, uh, variables, uh, adolescents underestimate uh, uh, a risk. Um, uh, it, it, adolescents don't underestimate risk. They, they overestimate it just as uh, adults do. Um, nor is it the case that adolescents believe that they're invulnerable, or at least they're no more likely to believe they're invulnerable than adults are likely to believe that they're invulnerable. There are no age differences in those beliefs, by the way. Um, studies of cognitive uh, development and information processing also find that it's not the case that adolescents think poorly uh, when they're making decisions. Very similarly to uh, data on logical reasoning, what you find is that information processing abilities, things like memory, 
uh, uh, increase, um, reach a plateau at about age 15 or 16, and really don't change uh, after that very much at all. Um, nor is it true that adolescents are unaware of the dangers associated with risky behavior. Surveys show uh, that adolescents uh, fully uh, understand the dangers of things like unprotected sex or drunk driving. They just do them uh, anyway. Um, so. Uh, if you look at data on the basic course of cognitive development, these are data from a study I'll talk about in a little bit, what you see is that um, it improves until uh, 15 or 16 or so, depending upon the measure, and then it reaches the plateau and doesn't change. So by these indicators, it's clear that adolescents are as smart as adults by the time they turn 16. And so the question that has motivated our work for so long is that if they are so smart, if they're just as good at adu as adults at logical reasoning, at risk perception, at information processing, and so forth, why do they do such stupid things? Um, here's an example of a stupid thing that's going on in New York City right now. This is a poster from a subway station uh, in Manhattan uh, reminding uh, people, prim primarily young people, that it is a bad idea to hold on to the outside of a subway car while it is traveling uh, through the subway system. And they have to remind young people not to do this um, because they do it uh, even though you would imagine that they know that it's a fairly dangerous thing to do. So one explanation for um, the reckless and risky behavior of adolescents in view of the fact that they're just as smart as adults um, is that it doesn't have to do with cognitive ability but has to do with psychosocial characteristics such as uh, sensation avoidance and impulse control, risk perception, resistance to peer pressure, and so forth. And uh, these are data from that same study and what you see here is that unlike the course of cognitive development, um, there is considerable social and emotional development going on during the late adolescent and early adult years. And if you put these two lines together, uh, you get what we have called a maturity gap, um, which uh, has to do with the fact that individuals mature intellectually before they mature socially and emotionally. Um, this helps solve a, 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 a puzzle that, that I think many parents and teachers struggle with, which is that the adolescents that they raise and teach, who seem to be so good at things like geometry and history, um, are so bad when it comes to exercising judgment in the real world. And the reason is that it has nothing to do with cognitive deficiencies. It has to do with immaturity uh, in these other domains. Um, so we have proposed an alternative view uh, to accounting for the increase in risk-taking uh, that we see during adolescence. And that alternative view suggests that heightened risk-taking in adolescence is not due at all to cognitive deficits, that it's the product of psychosocial, um, not intellectual, immaturity. Um, most importantly, uh, we believe that risk-taking in adolescence is absolutely normative, um, and that it's evolutionarily uh, adaptive. Um, in uh, other mammals, and of course we can model human adolescence in other mammals because all mammals go through puberty. In other mammals, when the juveniles reach puberty, they leave their natal environment and go out into the wild in search um, of a mate or several. Um, and that is a very risky and dangerous thing to do. And so it makes sense, perhaps, that evolution has um, made adolescence a time when individuals are more risk tolerant. 
because it facilitates uh, their likelihood of reproducing. Um, and actually, it turns out, if you look at the um, age at peak fecundity, that is, uh, the age at which a woman should start bearing children if she wants to maximize her reproductive success, it turns out that uh, it's about five years post-menarche. Menarche in most industrialized countries today is around 12, 12 and a half. Um, and uh, five years past 12, 12 and a half coincides with the peak in the age for risk-taking. So if the idea behind the theory here is that the reason that adolescents are wired to be willing to take risks is that it facilitates reproduction, it makes sense that you would be taking those risks at a time when people are fertile uh, and, and, and able to more easily bear uh, children. So, our research program has asked the following questions. Why does risk-taking increase between childhood and adolescence? Why does it decline between adolescence and adulthood? And uh, a topic that I'll get to later in the lecture, why is adolescent risk-taking especially likely to occur uh, in groups? So our work is grounded in social neuroscience, um, and in particular, in what uh, we call a dual systems model of adolescent risk-taking. This is a theoretical framework that uh, many labs around the world uh, have arrived at around the same point uh, in scientific time. Um, it's this model is called different things by different people. Some individuals refer to it as a maturational imbalance model. Um, it's basically the same thing. So the idea is that there are two brain systems that change a great deal during the adolescent years. One of them is an incentive processing system, and this is a brain system that's important for the valuation and prediction of potential rewards and punishments, and it also happens to be a brain system that's involved in the processing of emotional and social information. And this brain system is localized mainly in the ventral striatum, which is um, a region of the limbic system, um, and in the um, orbital frontal cortex, and in pathways linking those parts of the brain. What do we know about maturation of the incentive processing system uh, during adolescence? Well, we know that it undergoes major changes in early and mid-adolescence around the time of puberty. And we're discovering uh, each year that, that many of these changes are directly uh, a, a result of the, of the impact of pubertal hormones um, on the brain. A lot of that work has been done uh, in animals, but there is uh, research suggesting that, um, uh, that puberty and changes in this brain system are also linked in humans. And the, the main change that puberty causes in this brain system has to do with uh, the neurotransmitter dopamine. So there's an increase in dopaminergic activity in the pathways linking the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex uh, during uh, early and middle adolescence. And in fact, um, there's more dopaminergic activity uh, in this part of the brain during this part of, of the lifespan than at any other point in time. And as most of you probably know, dopamine is a very important neurotransmitter for our experience of pleasure. And this helps to explain the very sad fact um, that nothing for the rest of your life will ever feel as good to you as it did when you were a teenager. And that's because you don't have as much dopaminergic activity in the reward centers of the brain as you did then. 
These changes in dopaminergic activity in the brain show an inverted U-shaped pattern with age, kind of increasing between uh, pre-adolescence and uh, uh, let's say age 15 or so, and then declining as individuals move into uh, adulthood. And these changes result um, in, 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 a, in a suite of behavioral changes uh, that um, are the consequence of this increase in activity involving uh, a pleasure hormone. So individuals become increasingly attentive to rewards because if rewards feel so good, then you will pay much more attention to trying to get them. And this leads to increased sensation seeking. In other words, individuals will invest more energy in, in doing things to get those rewards, even if those things might be somewhat dangerous, in the same way that they'll do things to find a mate, even though, doing those, even though behaving in that way might be somewhat dangerous. Um, these changes also result in easier emotional arousal during adolescence um, and increased attentiveness to social information, which I will talk about uh, later. So um, within the dual systems framework that we use, the second system is a system that we refer to as a, a cognitive control system. And this is a system that's associated with uh, uh, executive function, um, which nowadays is being called cognitive control. And, and this involves uh, more sophisticated, higher order intellectual abilities like working memory, logical reasoning, planning, uh, and regulating impulses. And this is localized mainly um, in the lateral areas of the prefrontal cortex um, and in the parietal cortex. Now this system also undergoes very dramatic change during adolescence, but along a very different timetable. So uh, the cognitive control system develops gradually from pre-adolescence on and continues developing well into the mid-20s. Um, and we're able to document uh, the, these changes and we believe, although we're not certain, that these changes are less uh, related to puberty than are changes in the incentive processing system. There are structural changes, synaptic pruning and myelination in the frontal and parietal lobes of the brain during this time period, much more than during other periods in development. And there's also increased connectivity um, within different cortical regions and between the cortex um, and subcortical regions. Um, I don't have time to go into it in this talk, but I think that the, uh, the, the headline about adolescent brain development has been focused mainly on the development of the prefrontal cortex. I think the real story, or at least the very interesting story, is not going to be mainly about that, but about the development of connections between the prefrontal cortex and other brain regions and systems. These changes in the cognitive control system result in improvements in impulse control, a better coordination of emotion and cognition, which is facilitated uh, to a great measure by the improved connectivity between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, uh, more foresight um, and more planning ahead. But the, 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 the take-home message of this talk is that the differential timetables in the development of these two systems is very important to understanding adolescent risky behavior as well as other kinds of adolescent uh, behavior, including psychopathology. Um, because this 
excitation of the incentive processing system occurs very early in adolescence, around the time of puberty and connected to puberty, whereas the maturation of cognitive control is quite gradual and very protracted, and it's not complete until late adolescence or early adulthood. So, the metaphor that some of us have used for this is to suggest that uh, the accelerator uh, is pressed down to the floor before a good braking system is in place. Um, so uh, with that as a prelude, let me tell you about some research that we've been doing to test some of these hypotheses. So uh, one key aspect of our model is that reward-seeking and self-regulation are subserved by different brain systems and develop along different timetables during adolescence. Now those of you who are psychologists in here um, uh, may be surprised to, to learn that uh, uh, that careful research finds that sensation-seeking and impulsivity are completely different things. Um, although many of the ways that we measure these constructs conflate the two. And if you're skeptical of that, just think for a moment about the act of waiting uh, uh, online for a long time to ride a roller coaster. So that's an act of, of, of uh, impulse control in the pursuit of sensation-seeking. They're not the same thing um, and we can't measure them as if they're the same thing, and we now know that they're actually regulated by different uh, regions and systems of the brain. Um, this also leads to the conclusion that a period of heightened vulnerability um, for risky behavior is middle adolescence, because that's the time when this uh, incentive processing system is very easily aroused, but when cognitive control is still uh, immature. And we uh, believe that this vulnerability is exacerbated by the presence of peers. Peers are highly rewarding during adolescence compared to other periods in the lifespan. Um, and they activate the incentive processing system the same way that sex or food or drugs um, activate that system. And that increases the imbalance between the aroused um, incentive processing system and the immature cognitive control system. And I'll show you some uh, evidence that that may be why adolescents are especially prone to take risks um, when they're with their friends. So let me tell you about uh, uh, the first study um, that was funded by um, the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, I directed a research network for the foundation called the Research Network on Adolescent Development and Juvenile Justice. Um, this research network was not so much interested in adolescent risk-taking, but mainly in um, the, uh, the ways in which developmental science could inform juvenile justice policy and practice. And, um, uh, uh, of course, many of the crimes that young people commit are risky and reckless acts. And so a lot of what we discovered in our attempt to try to uh, inform juvenile justice policy uh, also informs uh, our understanding of risky and reckless behavior. So the purpose of this study was to examine age differences in capacities affecting judgment and decision making. And we collected data in five different sites around the United States. And this uh, generated a socioeconomically and ethnically diverse sample of uh, uh, 935 individuals between the ages of 10 and 30. Now, developmental psychologists rarely study an age span as wide as that. 
uh, and that presented some challenges in terms of developing uh, the right kinds of measures that would be uh, uh, that would be valid for 10-year-olds and for 30-year-olds. But the reason that we needed to study this age range was because if puberty plays a role in the arousal of the incentive processing system, we need to go young enough to have individuals in our sample who are pre-pubertal. Uh, if, on the other hand, cognitive control is still maturing during the mid-20s, we have to have individuals who are old enough where we can be fairly confident that they have matured um, with respect to that brain system. And we administered a series of computerized performance tests as well as standardized questionnaires uh, measuring uh, similar constructs. So um, the main constructs we assessed fall into two bins, um, reward processing and cognitive control. Um, and I won't go over these specific measures now because I'll talk about them as I show you findings that are relevant to each one. But within each category, we have both performance measures um, as well as uh, self-report measures. So um, uh, Jennifer mentioned that I was awarded a prize by the Jacobs Foundation in 2009 um, and uh, in deciding, uh, I couldn't put the prize in my bank account, so I had to use it for research. And so in deciding what I wanted to do with the money, um, I decided to spend it on a replication of the MacArthur study um, in, in these very, very different uh, locations around the world. And so we're still uh, in the field collecting data, administering the exact same battery that we did in the original MacArthur study um, in these places. Um, and today I will show you what a first peek uh, uh, at these data look like. Um, we have enough data on enough people across the whole age range in six countries now uh, to analyze the data. Uh, and uh, if we pool uh, the, the data from these countries, uh, we have more than 2,500 individuals. Ultimately, we'll have about 4,500 people uh, in the sample when we're finished with our data collection. So, I want to start by looking at reward processing and begin by looking at the most simple measure of sensation seeking, which is simply to ask people uh, how, uh, how often they engage in those kinds of behaviors. And so uh, this is um, a, a scale with a sample item being, I sometimes like to do things that are a little uh, frightening. And here you see um, an inverted U-shaped curve um, that is actually not dissimilar from what we know about dopaminergic activity uh, during the adolescent years. Um, and here's what we're seeing so far in the cross-national sample. So we also see a significant curvilinear trend and a non-significant linear trend. Um, the age peak is later in this cross-national sample. Um, uh, we're not sure why. It may be because puberty, on average, may be later in some of the less industrialized countries in this sample. We haven't had a chance yet to look at that, although we did administer measures of pubertal maturation uh, in this uh, sample as well, so we will be able uh, to tell that. Um, Back to the original MacArthur study, uh, this is a measure of risk preference. A sample item is how would you compare the benefits of fill-in-the-blank um, with the risks. 
we asked people this question about several different kinds of risky behaviors. And again, you see this familiar U-shaped curve um, that looks very much like sensation-seeking and a dopaminergic uh, activity uh, during this period of life. And the risk preference in the cross-national sample also, follow, also has a curvilinear effect, although it does have a linear effect, as you can see. Um, but it tends to increase from pre-adolescence on um, and then be higher here and then begin to decline uh, in, uh, in the early 20s. Um, as I mentioned before, we don't simply rely on people's self-reports. We also administered uh, computer-based testing uh, to, to, uh, to, to give us some take on similar constructs. One of our tests of reward processing is called the Iowa Gambling Task. In the Iowa Gambling Task, I give you four decks of cards face down. Now, we do this on a computer, not with uh, decks of cards. And I tell you that two of these decks are good and two of these decks are bad. And when you turn over a card from one of the decks, you receive some information about whether you've won or lost and how much you've won or lost. And you can do this uh, with money or points or candy, depending upon the age of the subjects that are in your study. And we administer this in three sets of 40 trials. So individuals have to make decisions about 120 cards. And we tell you that we want you to maximize your winnings by choosing from the correct decks. Now, of course, when you first start the task, you have no idea uh, which the correct decks are. And at the beginning, uh, people are choosing about 50% of the time from the good decks and 50% of the time from the bad decks. But over time, they increase the proportion of choices that they make from the good decks um, and decrease the proportion of choices they make from the bad decks. So this is what it looks like. Um, the, the program asks you if you want to play or pass. If you pass, that card is skipped and you don't get any information. But if you play, the card turns over and you're told uh, what the consequence of that choice um, are. So you get the idea of what this task is like. And we do this 120 times in blocks of, of uh, 40. Um, now, the, the band decks have larger gains, but they also have larger losses. And the ratio of loss to gain is calibrated so that if you keep pulling from those decks, you will lose over time. So for those of you in here who like to gamble, and I like to gamble, um, you know when you are playing blackjack or betting on roulette that if you do it long enough, you are going to lose. But for those of us who enjoy that pleasure, uh, it's partly because we like that feeling when you get the blackjack um, or when your roulette bet pays off, even though it's a low probability event. So we engage in that behavior um, anyway. And that's what continuing to pull from the bad decks really indicates about individuals. Um, the, the, the good decks, in contrast, have smaller gains, um, but they have smaller losses. And the ratio is calibrated so that you will win over time if you pull from the good decks. And so, what does it mean to perseverate in pulling from the bad decks? It, it indicates decision making that is um, excessively influenced by the prospect of a big reward. This task was originally developed to look at individuals who have lesions to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. They can't play this game very well. They perseverate on pulling from the bad decks. And they, they, this is true even when they have completely normal working memory um, and other executive functions. And so we track deck change over time. Now, because we have this pass or play option, uh, we can do something that you can't do with the normal administration of the task, which doesn't include that. We can separate out choosing good decks 
from avoiding bad decks. And, and clearly, you can maximize your uh, earnings on this task by doing either or both of those things. And we think of choosing good decks as an index of reward sensitivity because you're paying attention to where the rewards are, whereas choosing bad decks is an indication of cost sensitivity, because I mean avoiding bad decks, because that, that, that's what you're doing by avoiding those decks. So um, these are data on changes in the choice of good decks, which is indicated in the red bars, and in the avoidance of bad decks um, as a function of age. Um, and these are changes uh, in the cards drawn from those kinds of decks over the course uh, of, the, of the task, between the first block and the last block. The best way to, to read this graph is to start on the far right rather than the far left. And what you see here is that in these groups of adults, they change almost uh, equally in their avoidance of bad decks, so this goes down over time, and in their um, approach of good decks. You see the red bars and the yellow bars are approximately equal in length. But now if you look over on the far left side, you see something really interesting, which is that the younger individuals pretty much don't change um, their avoidance of bad decks. Most of the net change in their deck choice over time is due to increased approach to the good decks. And if you just squint and block out the yellow bars for a moment, you will see a U-shaped curve here um, in reward sensitivity that looks an awful lot like sensation-seeking risk preference and what we know about dopamine activity in the brain's reward centers. Now, here's what we're seeing in the cross-national sample. Again, a significant curvilinear effect um, in reward sensitivity um, and, a, and a linear effect um, in uh, cost avoidance in countries that are very, very different from uh, the United States. Um, a second measure of reward processing that we use is a, is a delay discounting task in which we ask individuals uh, to choose between the prospect of uh, receiving a smaller immediate reward and a larger delayed reward. And so we start with an offer that looks something like this, and then we, depending upon what your response is, we either raise or lower the, 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 the lower figure um, and um, keep the larger amount constant. Um, and we keep doing that to you um, as a function of how you respond until you reach a point where the subjective value of the immediate reward is the same as the subjective value of the delayed reward. Um, and we repeat this um, with uh, uh, varying trials with different time intervals um, and different starting points. And it's generally accepted in behavioral economics that a lower amount accepted short-term indicates a stronger need for short-term gratification because you're willing to take less in order to get it sooner. All right? So what we see here is that um, younger individuals um, are much uh, uh, more likely to accept a lower immediate reward um, than older individuals are, um, with a big change going on here in this part of the um, adolescent period. Um, I'm, I'm often asked whether this is because younger individuals just think about money in different ways than older individuals do, um, but you get very similar results if you use something else like, the, would you like three drops of, of juice now um, or a cup uh, in an hour from now. So uh, the, the preference for immediate reward, stronger preference for immediate reward is a phenomenon that is uh, more characteristic of early adolescence than other periods. It's also the case that 
giving people hypothetical choices yields the same discount function as giving people real choices does. Um, so um, we talk about a discount rate, um, which is the extent to which you discount the future. Um, and the higher your discount rate is, the more you discount um, the future. And so this drop in discount rate in here um, is reflective of the previous slide um, in that younger people discount the future more than uh, middle adolescents and older adolescents do. And if we look at the international comparison, um, we see also a very large drop um, in, a discount, in, in the discount rate at the same period of time. Uh, this is not significant. That is, there's no significant curvilinear um, effect um, in, in these data. So let's shift for a moment here away from reward processing and talk about cognitive control. So we'll start again with the simplest measure, which is asking people about their own impulse control. And what we see here, um, if, if we take an item like I do things without thinking and reverse score it, is that you get a, a nice linear uh, a protracted increase in impulse control, which is consistent what, with what we know about the development of the cognitive control brain system. Um, we see um, uh, uh, a different pattern so far in the cross-national sample where it looks like there's a drop and then an increase, but um, what I want to draw your attention to really is here uh, uh, in the indication that there's continued impulse control even in these other nations um, in the later part of adolescence um, and the early 20s, consistent with what we know about continued prefrontal maturation during that time period. We measure this behaviorally with a task called the Tower of London. Now in the Tower of London, we give you a configuration of three colored balls and three different sized pegs on which you can move them. Um, and we ask you to rearrange those balls by moving them uh, uh, onto the pegs and then back and forth and among the different pegs um, in order to match this goal configuration. And we ask you to do this with as few moves as possible. <clears throat> One of the measures that we use on this task, in addition to seeing how well people are at solving the problems, is how long they take before they make their first move. <clears throat> because if you're planning ahead and trying to work out a sequence in your mind, if you make a bad first move, you're going to have to undo it and that's going to cost you more moves. Now the problems on this task in our battery range from three move problems, which are quite easy to do, to seven move problems, which are quite difficult. And if we look at, uh, at data on how long people wait before making their first move, we see this very interesting pattern. On the easy problems, the three and four move problems, represented by the red bars, um, there are uh, uh, no or very small age differences uh, in that, um, whereas on the hard problems with age, people take longer before making their first move. Um, in fact, the oldest age group in this sample uh, takes, um, waits twice as long as the youngest age group before making its first move. More importantly, perhaps, in the young age groups, um, there's almost no difference between how long they wait before approaching an easy problem and how long they wait before approaching a difficult problem, which we think is a, 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 a reasonable index um, of uh, impulsivity because they're jumping the gun and making a move before they've really thought things out. And the data in the cross-national sample are looking uh, fairly similar to that. Um, again, very few age differences on the easy problems. 
that's the uh, three and four move problems, and an increase in time waited, uh, waiting uh, for the first move um, on the more difficult problems. So a pattern that looks very, very similar to what we saw in the original MacArthur study. Um, another aspect of cognitive control that we've been interested in is people's ability to resist peer influence. <clears throat> because that really means putting the brakes on an impulse that is stimulated by what your friends are asking you to do. And we see that individuals become more resistant to peer influence um, in a, a kind of linear fashion um, over the course of this 20-year period, with most of the gains occurring uh, in middle um, adolescence. And in the cross-national sample, we're seeing a similar pattern of increase in self-reported resistance to peer influence in these other countries as well. This is important, I think, because um, the United States has the reputation of being a country in which peer pressure is especially strong on adolescents to do uh, bad things. And it may be the case that peer pressure um, is especially strong um, among adolescents in all, all kinds of, of countries, regardless of, of what the um, overriding cultural uh, value scheme is. Um, so these are data from uh, a very large uh, study, national study, called the uh, Children of the National Longitudinal uh, study of youth. The sample is about 7,000 individuals. Um, and what you see here, the, the, the researchers have graphed out uh, age differences in sensation seeking, um, which follows this inverted U-shaped curve, and in impulsivity, which follows this linear trend here. So basically exactly what we're finding in our data and in the cross-national sample as well. And I've circled here uh, this, this period of heightened vulnerability when sensation seeking is very high but impulse control is very low. That is, impulsivity is quite high. And this is the period that we expect uh, to be a period of heightened risk taking because of the juxtaposition of this high sens sensation seeking um, and poor impulse control. <clears throat> so the interim summary um, is that uh, the incentive processing system undergoes important changes at puberty that lead to increases in, in reward seeking, but that this occurs against a backdrop of still maturing uh, self-control, and that this makes mid-adolescence a time of high sensation seeking, um, but impulsivity at the, same, at the same time. And this increases their vulnerability to engage in risky and reckless behavior because they're drawn toward rewarding <clears throat> Uh, situations, uh, even if they might be dangerous, um, and they have more difficulty regulating the impulses to follow those inclinations. Um, now, you remember, um, I showed you earlier uh, this graph indicating that individuals mature intellectually before um, they mature psychosocially, what we refer to um, as the maturity gap. And here's what we're seeing in the cross-national sample. Um, not an identical pattern, but I think one with the same basic message, which is that in these other countries as well, um, intellectual maturation occurs at a faster pace than psychosocial maturation, leading to a very similar maturity gap um, in these other countries as well, although somewhat later in development. Now, I want to shift here and talk about uh, the peer effect. Um, and uh, this is a, a, a research pro a program on the neural and behavioral correlates of peer influence. Um, 
I mentioned before that adolescent risk-taking usually occurs in groups. We know that most experimentation with alcohol and illicit drugs occurs when adolescents are with their friends. Um, the risk of a serious automobile accident significantly increases with the presence of same-aged passengers among teen drivers, but the presence of passengers has no effect on crash rates among adult drivers. Um, and we know from uh, crime data that adolescents are relatively more likely than adults to commit crimes um, in groups. Um, and so the, 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 the first plausible explanation for this is that adolescents spend so much time with their peers that everything they do occurs when they're uh, uh, more likely to occur when they're in groups. So we did an experiment um, in which we have people come to our lab and ask them to bring two same age, same sex friends and then they're randomly assigned to take a test battery either by themselves or with their friends watching them. Our initial studies uh, had the friends in the same room as the person in the observed condition, and then we developed a paradigm to have friends in an adjacent room but able to watch the subject's performance in order to do some imaging work. So this is the first study um, of this. This was a risky driving video game, and what you see here is, is that when adolescents are alone, um, they, uh, uh, they don't take significantly more chances um, than the uh, college undergraduates or the adults do, but that Having them do the same driving game, remember they're randomly assigned, having them do the same driving game with their friends in the room with them doubles the number of, of risks that they take. It has a modest uh, effect on college undergraduates and no effect whatsoever um, on adults. So we can rule out the possibility that it's just simply the fact that they spend time with their friends. Um, these are data that I presented earlier on delayed discounting showing the lower indifference point for um, middle adolescents than uh, young adults. So we did a study in which we um, randomly assigned young adults to take a delayed discounting task either by themselves or with their friends watching and what we find is that um, with a bunch of college undergraduates if you put them together with their friends that they approach delayed discounting tasks the same way that 14 year olds do um, as opposed to the way that they would um, if they're alone. This is important because it indicates that it's not just risk taking but it has to, that, but that it's reward processing that might be affected by the presence of peers. Um, now these peers that we've done in these experiments were known friends that the subject brought to the lab that got to be cumbersome and expensive for us. So we developed a paradigm uh, to have a virtual peer in which the participant is simply told that there's another person the same age down the hall watching his or her performance and we have a whole deception scenario designed to uh, create the impression that there really is a person down the hall. Um, and uh, we, uh, uh, we recently finished a study of delayed discounting using the virtual peer and we find the exact same effect that we did using real peers. So this gets us even a little bit closer that the peer effect is not limited to people you know. We can create it by having a perfect stranger that you're told is, is watching you. Um, the stranger is someone of the same age and same sex. Um, we recently developed a, a probabilistic gambling task um, in which you're shown a wheel in which uh, it's going to be spinning around um, and we um, have different uh, uh, configurations on the, on the uh, wheel. Green means you win, red means you lose, gray is a neutral zone, so we have a low risk, an ambiguous, and a high risk situation. Um, so you're presented with a certain type of wheel. Um, you're asked if you want to play or pass, that is make a gamble on it. 
um, and then uh, the wheel stops spinning and you're given the feedback on what happened to you. And so what we see here, these are um, 15 to 17 year olds, is that under low risk conditions, there are no differences between individuals who do the task alone and those who do it with their peers. But when the wheels are ambiguous or, um, or high risk wheels, um, the presence of peers, uh, this is a virtual peer, the presence of peers increases risky decision making among adolescents. So now we've demonstrated this with multiple tasks. Um, uh, we then decided to take this into the fMRI, and we developed a risky driving task called the stoplight task. Your goal is to drive down a, a destination as quickly as possible. You're going to encounter intersections where the light turns yellow, and three things can happen. You can break at the intersection and lose some time. You can run the light successfully and not lose any time off the clock, or you can run the light and crash, and you lose a lot of time. Okay, um, And again, um, we randomly assign individuals to do this task, either observed or not observed by their friends. Um, these are data gathered from an fMRI experiment, and we find the same effect. An increase in risky driving among the adolescents, but not among the adults. Increase in the number of crashes among the adolescents, but not among the adults. Again, this is random assignment now in the environment of the magnet, um, which is very noisy and very distracting. We still create the peer effect. And what the imaging data tell us is that when adolescents are doing this task in front of their friends, they show increased activation of reward centers of the ventral striatum and the orbital frontal cortex um, relative to when they're alone. The adult pattern of brain activity is identical in both conditions. And moreover, the, the, the degree of activation of the reward center is correlated with your likelihood of running the yellow light. So it is the prospect of the reward that seems to be changed by having individuals be observed by their peers. Um, I know that we're short on time, so I'm going to skip this experiment. Um, but it was another experiment in which we found that adolescents, but not adults, showed greater striatal activation during the anticipation of a large reward um, uh, in, a, in a different kind of gambling task. Um, so, and I know I'm a, a little over, but I have to show you this because this is really the climax of the talk, so bear with me here. You, you, honestly, you will not regret this and you will, you will remember what I'm going to show you. Okay? <laughs> so, What's going on here? <clears throat> Why do we get this peer effect? Um, well, we ruled out the possibility that adolescents, because adolescents simply do everything more um, with their friends by having the experimental design. And we ruled out the possibility that adolescents put pressure on each other to take risks because we have them in an adjacent room. Um, uh, 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 well, uh, because we, we, can do, we can make this effect happen with studies of reward processing where there's no risk involved at all, like a delayed discounting task. And we ruled out the possibility <clears throat> that it's just adolescents encouraging each other to behave in certain ways because in the fMRI study, they couldn't communicate with the adolescents who were watching them from another room. They just knew when they could and couldn't see what their performance was. So a remaining possibility is that they're trying to impress um, or to please their friends so that even if their friends are not directly encouraging them, they're still behaving in ways that they think are going to be admired by these peers. <clears throat> So we needed to figure out a way to take this into account and to try to control for this. Um, it doesn't, it's not completely controlled by having a virtual peer because you might think, well, I know this person is my age and so I'm going to have to behave in a certain way to please or impress this person. So we did the experiment with mice. 
So all mammals, as I said before, go through puberty. Um, and so we can look at hypotheses about the impact of puberty on behavior and decision making in other animals as well as humans. And so what we did was we raised mice um, in, uh, in, in a series of litters. And uh, after they were weaned, um, we combined them with two other mice, each from another litter. So they weren't their siblings. Um, and so we created um, uh, these peer groups of mice. And then we randomly picked half of them whom we would test as adolescents and half of them that we would test as adults. And then when they got to that point in time, we tested half of them alone and we tested half of them with their peers at both ages. The test was how much they would drink alcohol if given um, uh, unlimited access to it. So, um, we put them in these cages. Here's the mouse being tested alone. There are four alcohol spouts. This is filled. Uh, this is a species of mouse, uh, by the way, that drinks alcohol um, and actually likes alcohol. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we have these spouts. Uh, and uh, here are the three peers in their condition. Again, four spouts. So there's no competition for access to the alcohol. Um, and we have a uh, 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 an open barrier here so we can measure their movement around as well. Um, and so lo and behold, um, adolescents, but not adults, uh, spend more time drinking alcohol when they're with their cage mates um, than when they're alone. This is pretty staggering, I think, and it argues against the idea that adolescents do what they do to impress their friends, unless there's something about mice that we don't really fully comprehend. But I doubt that that's what's going on here. Um, when we saw these results, I was ready to write it up and send it off to science. Um, my behavioral science, uh, uh, my behavioral neuroscience colleague who co-designed the study with me said, no, we've got to replicate it. And so we just finished a replication and we find the exact same thing. Um, so we think this is a real phenomenon. Uh, there's something about being around peers during adolescence that affects the way that adolescents perceive and process rewards. Um, this is not due to differential activity um, because uh, that, that, that does not differ among these groups. It actually isn't due to the number of drinks that they take. It's, it's, it seems to be uh, the actual time they uh, spend drinking. We collected blood alcohol uh, data on the mice um, and we haven't um, analyzed it yet. Uh, so we're, we're waiting to look at that. Um, but you see here that time drinking is greater among the adolescent mice when they're in the social condition than when they're by themselves. So this heightened reward value of peers increases reward sensitivity more generally, and this accentuates this imbalance between these competing brain systems. And so we think that the impact of peers on, of reward sensitivity may be a, a hardwired feature of adolescence. We know that there are individual differences in susceptibility to the peer effect. I don't have time to talk about that today. But I think that uh, this does have implications. Um, if risk taking is an inherent feature of adolescence, what are the implications for, uh, uh, for public, po public health policy? Um, what are the implications for legal and social policy? How does this change the way we think about adolescence and attempts to influence their behavior? So thank you for your attention. If you want to see any of the science behind um, these studies, you can download the papers from my website at Temple University. So, thank you very much. Okay. So, um, I've been told that we have time for three questions. Yes.
Right, so the question is that we know that there are large sex differences in many risky behaviors, although not all of them. I mean, um, alcohol and drug use, at least in the States, is very comparable among males and, and, and females. Sorry, can we get David's talk up? Yeah, yeah, sure, sorry. Um, so we, we, we know that, um, that, that there are sex differences in some, but not all. Uh, reckless driving is more common among male drivers than, than female drivers. Um, the answer to your story is that we sometimes find, your question is that we sometimes find main effects um, for gender, but we don't find gender by age interactions. So we still see that same inverted U-shaped curve in reward seeking among females as we do among males. We still see the same gradual in, in, increase in impulse control among females than among males. The peer effect um, is the same in females and, and males. So we see it for, for both. Yes? Thank you for an exciting talk. And it's created a sort of time wormhole. I can remember 31 years ago, another visiting professor in psychology, Helmut Nyberg from the Netherlands, talking about all the Danish school children with artificial puberty. He followed up every day in school, boy or girl, that had androgens, estrogen, and so forth, to artificial create puberty. And in terms of, uh, of the risk taking, I might say in this country, for example, this Monday I was in the all party parliamentary group for suicide prevention. In all the behaviors I can think of, including heart drug use, boys are way ahead of girls. Uh, although I might say violent girls, because I've looked at them, are just as violent as the boys, they're just far fewer of them. Yeah. But what Nyberg found was that that. Um, Dorsal system, because Lawrence Weiskrantz was in the audience, dorsal cognitive system, ventral emotional system, was differentially affected by the hormones of puberty <laughs> in human adolescence. And particularly, estrogen changed the rate of maturation in schoolgirls dramatically. And uh, basically, the gap narrows much more quickly with estrogen than it does with the antigens in boys. Hmm, interesting. Even looked at peer effects. Mm -hmm. and some of your effects may be to do with pheromones. We didn't know the human pheromones 31 years ago, but he noticed that the girls who changed their sensitivity to the puberty in their classmates, mm -hmm. they were picking up something about who the other girls in the class were who were going through puberty. Right, so we, we know from studies of menstrual synchrony that when women live together, their menstrual cycles start to synchronize. So we don't know, I mean, that's a great question. We don't know if this is pheromonal. It has to be mediated by some biological uh, mechanism. Our next goal in this, in this program of work is, because we can model it now with rodents, is to look at dopaminergic activity in ways that we couldn't look at um, in humans. But, but experimentally it happens in humans. Brain on artificial puberty and you see big changes in cognitive function. Yeah, yeah. And it's also true in, in non-experimental research that in, gen that in general, early maturing girls and early maturing boys engage in more risk behavior than later maturing peers. So we have time for one more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So the question is whether we have any counterfactuals. Um, we have one, um, one big one that um, uh, we, we're still trying to understand. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a task called the balloon analog risk task. This is a task that's used a lot in studies of risk taking where you have a balloon on the screen and you inflate it by pressing a computer key and the larger the balloon gets, the more money you earn. But if the balloon pops, 
you lose everything that you've accumulated on that trial. And the balloons are programmed to go off at different times, so you don't know um, whether you're doing a risky uh, balloon or not. And you have the option, of course, of stopping at any point in time. And what we find on this task is that younger adolescents actually stop and cash out earlier than adults do. So, it, so adults end up exploding the balloon more um, than, than children do. Um, we're having a hard time explaining it. The, the person who developed the task has found the same thing. Um, other labs have found the same thing as well. I, I think that this, you know, all risk-taking is not the same. And in, in different kinds of risk-taking that we study in the real world and in the lab may be influenced by uh, different underlying processes that, uh, you know, that, that come online in different ways for people of different ages. But we're, we're trying to figure it out. Thank you.